Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, journalists in peril, especially journalists who have been kidnapped. The question is, should ransom be paid for people who are kidnapped, journalists and otherwise? There's a new book out from the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, Joel Simon, called We Want to Negotiate, The Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. Um, It's published by Columbia Global Reports, and it makes the argument that the long-held U.S. and British policy about ransom, which is that it shouldn't be paid, is wrong and needs to be rethought. I talked to Joel about the book at a, uh, in a conversation at the journalism school earlier this week. We were joined by Janine DiGiovanni, who is one of the great uh, war correspondents of our time, who's reported from uh, Bosnia and Syria and Chechnya. And we sort of debated this question of um, how, do you, how do you sort of figure out the best way forward when um, pain ransom um, could end up encouraging more kidnapping or even funding terrorism, but not paying ransom ends up with people dying. So what you're going to hear uh, in this edition of The Kicker is that conversation at, in the world room of the Columbia Journalism School between me, Joel Simon, and Janine DiGiovanni. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, it's a thrill to be here. I'm... Um, Joel and I have worked together a lot over the last couple of years in our capacities at CPJ and CJR, and um, uh, CPJ is a great friend of what we do at the Columbia Journalism Review. I was telling Janine earlier that I was living in London when she was reporting in Sarajevo and was sort of in awe of everything that she did. I think one of the reasons that this this book is resonating is because, partly because of the broader climate around uh, the press and and views towards the press and and even hatred to the press. Um, Joel, let let's start with what I thought was a really moving moment at the very beginning of the book that really got you launched on this, which was a conversation that you had with Diane Foley, who was the mother of James Foley, um, a, a hostage in the Middle East. So tell us tell us that story and how you got on this road. Yeah, well, um, sadly, um, kidnapping is an occupational hazard for journalists, so it's something that over the years at CPJ I've had to grapple with. And then um, Jim Foley was kidnapped in in late 2012, but during the summer of 2013 there was... In Syria. In Syria. He was working in Syria. Uh, There was a series of kidnappings, and the title of the book is actually uh, from the um, ransom note that the Foley family received from the kidnappers, which which was... over, over a year after he'd gone missing. There was no sign of him. And it said, we want to negotiate. And you know, the, the, the Foley family was trying, you know, was, was really didn't know what to do. Um, they, because of the US policy of no concessions, they really didn't have the support of the US government. Uh, but at a certain point, they decided they, they wanted to pay a ransom. They were going to try. It wasn't even clear that it was possible. And so Diane and John Foley, Jim's parents, came to me, and they asked if I would help basically raise uh, money for a ransom. So I wanted to help. Uh, But I had some concerns. The concerns were about the possible legal jeopardy to me and my organization. And CPJ actually had a longstanding policy, you know, that was based on, you know, while, while we recognized that families and news organizations would pay ransom, we had concern that the payment of ransom would actually increase the risk to other journalists by making the crime more attractive. And then after uh, Jim was killed, Diane and I sort of had a heart-to-heart, and she came to me 
And because you had heard whatever through the grapevine that she was disappointed in what CPJ had yeah, done. Yeah, I mean, she she felt like you know after Jim Jim was killed, she she sort of thought we could have done more. And she said, you know, well, well, how do you really know this? How do you know that the underlying assumption is correct? And and I kind of had to acknowledge that it's logical, but I didn't really know it to be true. So and, 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 and so that that was the origin of the book. That's that's what started me on the whole process that led to this book. So let's let's unpack what the what the understanding is about why mm-hmm. the, the the view of the U.S. government was that you shouldn't pay ransom. First was that um, it would encourage more kidnapping. More, more kidnapping. Right. Um, and then the second was that the money paid for the ransom would be used to fund um, terrorism. Right. I'm going to turn to Janine. It's important to note that the status of the U.S. government is not the status of the French government and other uh, governments in Europe. It is the it is the policy of the the British government as well. So the U.S. and British are in the no concession zone. Europe is in a different zone. Um, you worked in war zones around the world, and um, how how what is the level of understanding of war correspondence of what their passport means in terms of their ability to move around and do their jobs? Well, I think now, thanks to Joel and CPJ, um, there is much more awareness. But I know that when I started out in the early 90s, say in Yugoslavia, first of all, kidnapping really wasn't an issue there. But then when I started working in Chechnya, which um, was a high risk of of kidnapping, there was very little information, and not only that, my my editors, um, I mean, this was News International, it was Murdoch, um, seemed to have very little concern or very preparation for us. I mean, I do remember being pulled aside and being told by my foreign editor, um, if you get kidnapped in Chechnya, uh, our policy, British government, we do not negotiate with terrorists. But... Murdoch is very good friends with um, one of the oligarchs, and and we'll get you out. So don't worry <laughs> about it. Um, and that was that was it. But so you you yourself had an understanding because you were telling me you you actually carry three passports. You're a French, British, American passport holder, which is awesome. Um, but Probably you, illegal. <laughs> but, 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 but don't tweet that. It's being live streamed, everybody. <laughs> but you know when you travel in these places, not to have your American or British passport around, right? I became a French um, national in 2004, so prior to that, I was wandering around with a, a British and an American. Um, and you knew there were certain countries that it was better to work in Africa with a British passport. It, it was Usually it's better not to have an American passport. Um, very, I'm trying to think of countries where maybe Israel is one place where it's probably better to have one. But um, I do know now, and I'm not really proud of this, because it's is, is that I travel on my French passport simply because I know that the French would pay if something happened to me. And I don't know if that's testing fate. And also, I have you know the guilt that I know most of my colleagues don't have that luxury. Um, if you position as a government is that you pay ransom, you sort of like are putting the sign that you're an ATM machine for anybody who wants to take you. That's, that's the fear, right? Just there does not seem to be any correlation between the policy that a particular government has vis-a-vis no concessions or concessions, and the likelihood that you will be kidnapped. And actually, when you dig down into the logic a little more deeply, this makes sense, because the, the um, 
market, if you will, for kidnapping is determined not by the policy of one particular country. It's determined by the fact that families will always pay. Uh, their employers will pay. Some governments will pay. Um, it's, you know, so, so there already is a market. And this, there's, a, there's, a, there's an economic incentive for the crime. And there's a political incentive as well. Once that exists, and it does exist, and it's basically impossible to combat, then there does not seem to be any advantage, any correlation um, in terms of being on one side of this policy or the other, because the kidnappers are simply not checking passports. They're grabbing likely victims, and then where there is a correlation is um, in survival rate. So if you are Spanish, and I looked at several case studies in my book, the survival rate for Spanish citizens who are uh, taken hostage by terror, terror groups and, 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 and other you know, non-state actors call them is 100%. And the, then Spain pays. That's Spain pays. Italy pays. France um, is more complicated. So basically what I found in France is it's a political calculation. So the French will pay if, if, if there's a political cost. So you have to get people into the street. You have to make a, make a big headache for the government. Then they'll pay. French survival rate is around 75 to 80%. American survival rate is about 25%. That is the cost of this policy in terms of lives. So, well, let's talk about France. And the, the picture that you paint of how France responds to these cases was totally interesting to me because it becomes a huge sort of cause celeb for the government. Is it purely political expediency or does it say something about how... France views journalists in their role? Well, I, I think France overall takes freedom of expression very seriously. Um, and does it take the press more seriously? I'm, I'm not sure. There's not a tradition, say, as there is in Britain, of a, a tabloid press. So it's a much more serious intellectual kind of, other than Le Parisien, um, a more serious press. But um, I do think as well there is, there is a kind of moral standing where um, you know someone has our journalists, this is important. They are they are part of us. We need to protect them. Um, my one thought while you're mm -hmm. talking about this is about freelancers, yeah. because since the Arab Spring, there's been you know for me working in the field, they're basically who you find in the field are freelancers, and how are they going to be protected? Because their cor corporations aren't going to pay for them. They're not tied to the New York Times or the, um, the Washington Post. And also, what if you're, you come from a poor family? So let's dig into the other plank of the no concessions argument, which is the money is going to be used, the money that's m paid by the governments will be used to fund terrorism. Um, what's the data on that? Um, uh, you, you know, the question is not whether um, the money is going to them. The question is, what can you do about it? So the, the st strategy of the Obama administration was to say, well, if we have a, a, a global policy of no concessions, if we can get the Europeans on board, if they refuse to pay, and if everyone refuses to pay, then we will undermine the economic logic of this crime, and al-Qaeda will stop kidnapping people. You know, for France or for Spain or for Italy, you know, leaving somebody behind um, and letting them die, uh, you know, politically that was impossible. So in the end, but what in the end what actually happened is this gulf between the no concessions and the concessions divide actually, I think, increased in some ways the amount of money uh, going to terrorist groups. And this is completely counterintuitive, but the best way to put pressure on uh, uh, on someone to pay ransom is to kill one of the other hostages. 
And so you're making that decision easy. There was even a message from um, um, Osama bin Laden um, at one point where there was a dialogue around negotiations, and he said, well, kill the least val valuable hostage. I, I think that we have to have a global policy. I think that's the main thing, that we have to have something that stretches across the board so that the Americans are online with the Brits and the Brits with the French. My only worry is that we will become ATM machines then. And the data, as you said, there's no clear um, data on it. But what I think of, what I always go back to, is in the 90s, the New York Times asked me to go to the Philippines to write about the Abu Sayyaf. And no, it must have been a bit later, because I asked for K&R insurance. And That's kidnapping and ransom. Kidnapping and ransom insurance, yeah. um, which is very, very expensive. And you know, again, freelancers can't afford it. And they came back to me about a week later. They said, we've got to go to management. And they said, no. Um, and the reason is not because we don't want to pay for it, but because um, it will make you a walking ATM machine. If they realize that you have insurance, then you know this will set a precedent. And I think I've always, um, and I made the decision, they said, it's up to you if you want to go or not. And I decided not to go. But of all the things that could happen to a journalist, for me, I think kidnapping is the absolute lowest, um, you know, the, the ninth circle of hell. And I just didn't, I wanted to protect myself as much as I could. No, I, I you know, well, I think. By the way, wouldn't you carry a K&R card? I mean, how would they know that you had this insurance? I suppose what they meant is that if you got, if I got kidnapped, they would, I would have said, you know, here's the number I'm going to call, you can negotiate. And then they would have said, aha, we got this one. Now the next 10 journalists coming this way, we can snack. I was really intrigued by your, um, by your conversation in the book about Trump and his um, view towards this, which was not what I expected. Um, tell us a little bit about, about how he, he inherited that policy from yeah. Obama, but then how he's interpreted it. So one of the things that happened, you know, I started the, talking about um, Diane Foley and the conversation we had. There, she's, a, she's an incredibly powerful person. She really is. And she basically did something that no one had ever done. She made public just how shabbily and how poorly she'd been treated by the U.S. government. And the other families shared this experience. And the Obama administration was basically forced to their credit, to acknowledge that you know this this was a problem, and so they conducted a hostage policy review. So they took the no concessions policy off the table. In other words, that was not going to be discussed. The no concessions policy would remain in place. However, they looked at the structures um, and created new structures to better support the families. Uh, Obama, at the end of this review, announced that clear that no American has ever actually been prosecuted for paying ransom. There was more clarity around communication with hostage takers, so there was a little bit of, um, you could call it a softening of the policy. Um, and I think that one of the challenges that um, Obama had was that he was so focused on the legitimate strategic considerations, i.e., you know, cutting off funding for terrorist organizations, ensuring that rogue governments who take Americans, you know, put them in prison unjustly are not able to, you know, have coercive pressure on the United States, that he kind of lost track of the human dimensions of this policy, the humanity, the needs of the family. And whereas Obama was totally focused on the strategic cost, Trump is completely indifferent to the strategic cost. He sees the political benefit. And so he's actually been quite successful 
and in getting Americans freed. And the families that I've spoken to um, have been quite pleased. I want to go back to what you were talking about, the humanity yeah. of it. Um, and I think this is so important because so often we think a hostage and, and you, you forget that behind that hostage is a family. You know, it's someone's daughter, someone's son, someone's wife. Um, and on the two occasions which really shook me, I, I knew um, Steve Sutloff quite well and I saw him um, right before his last trip. We were in Aleppo and we were corresponding a lot and he actually wanted me to go with him on his last trip when he was kidnapped. Um, and he was sending me Facebook messages right up until the end and, and um, suddenly it, he stopped writing and a few weeks later I got a message from one of our colleagues who just said, um, I'm writing from Steve's computer, um, he's gone dark and he wanted me to try to give as much information as I had. But afterwards, when after Steve was killed, his parents reached out to me and it was heartbreaking because what they said was, um, can, is there anything else you remember about him? Not, not about the details of how he went missing, but about him, about the last time you saw him, about what he was talking about, about you know, any kind of details, because we miss him so much. And to me, as a parent, I found this utterly heartbreaking. I would always say to young young writers and journalists who reached out to me, you know, when they wanted to go to Syria, don't. It's not the war to cut your teeth on. It's no war is a war to cut your teeth on, but Syria especially was so complicated and so dangerous. So I think what was so horrible about the Obama policy was that the parents were treated so badly. The, the most high-profile case of a journalist in peril under Trump has been Jamal Khashoggi, yeah. which he completely was indifferent to yeah. and even hostile to. So that's got to that doesn't doesn't that sort of give us a bad hint of what's going to happen once one of these journalist cases plays out? I mean, I I, th I I I think I think that it's really you know you have to look at it through the political framework. And yes, the the I, I mean, I would call in the Khashoggi murder. You know, I would call Trump an accessory after the fact. He has basically participated in the, the Saudi cover-up of that crime, and uh, and and that sends a is someone who devotes his life to defending the rights of journalists. That sends a completely dispiriting message uh, that the president of the United States would basically tell um, those who want to do harm to journalists that you know if you have a strategic relationship with the United States, there'll be no there'll be no consequence. Well, thank you both. As I said at the outset, it's a treat to be up here with you. Thank you. Um, I thought thank it's you, totally Kyle. fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. Um, we always have a lot about um, threats against journalism at CJR, so check us out at CJR.org, on social media, and on our new social app called Galley by CJR, which you can get through the App Store or via our website. Thanks for listening. See you next week.